we truly feed upon the body and blood of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. But we do so not in a carnal or fleshly manner, but spiritually. And spiritually doesn't mean in an imaginary way or in a pretend way. No, spiritually means that we partake of Christ in this eating and drinking of his body and blood in a miraculous work of the Spirit. And it is through this work of the Spirit, as we commune with Christ's body and blood, that we learn to receive the love of God. We learn to receive the service of Jesus Christ as he transforms us through his union with himself into men and women for whom the gospel and the love of God is not simply some abstract, far-off reality, but something that is bred into our hearts and into our bones, that God is our God and that we are his children. In other words, to say this in a, in a Trinitarian way, what we're saying is that the Lord's Supper is a sacramental meal whereby we feed upon the Christ who is our life by the power of the Holy Spirit and come to know thereby that we are truly the beloved sons and daughters of God. The Lord's Supper is a sacramental meal whereby we feed upon the Christ who is our life by the power of the Holy Spirit and come to know that we are truly the beloved sons and daughters of God. This morning, as we conclude this brief sermon series, I want to do so by adding another sort of thing for us to think about together related to this sacrament. As wonderful as the Lord's Supper is, when we take this sacrament, we learn to do something else besides just feed upon Christ. We learn actually to direct all of the hungers that are present in our lives toward the reality to which the Lord's Supper points and participates in. Eternal communion with the living and triune God, the one who made us for himself. The Lord's Supper also is a way that our hungers, our desires, are directed toward their proper end, toward the only end that will bring us satisfaction, that is God himself. We're going to think about these things um, first by reading again from the scriptures from Luke chapter 6. This is Luke's uh, version of Jesus' teaching on the plain. Uh, it's similar to the Sermon on the Mount, but also different in some significant ways. I'm going to focus on Jesus' word words in verse 21, but we'll read 20 to 23 to give us the broader context. This is Luke chapter 6, 20 to 23. And he, that is Jesus of Nazareth, he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. 
Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so they did to your so so I'm sorry, excuse me, for so their fathers did to the prophets. This is the thus far the reading of God's word. It is absolutely true, and it is given to you because your Father in heaven loves you. Let's pray. Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of all of our hearts gathered here in your presence would be found pleasing and acceptable in your sight. We ask this through our rock and redeemer, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In the sixth chapter of the gospel according to Luke, Jesus blesses his disciples, but he does so in a very strange way. He says to them, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are the hungry, Jesus says, not blessed are the full or blessed are the satisfied. What a strange thing to say. What a peculiar declaration and one that runs against our sense of how blessings ought to go, right? Jesus might as well have said, blessed are the weak, or blessed are the needy, or blessed are those who cannot stop crying. Those are blessings that on the surface don't sound much like blessings at all, and yet those are the kinds of things that our Lord says. The ancient Israelites in the Old Testament certainly would have been confused or even angered by that statement that Jesus made, blessed are the hungry, because hunger was a huge part of their story. Remember in the story of the Exodus, after their God had come and delivered them from the slavery and oppression of the Egyptians, the nation of Israel followed their God out in toward the promise, or out toward rather, the promised land, toward the land of Melkanani, the land that seemed to promise fulfillment for all their desires, where they would live and flourish and peace and prosperity. That was what was promised to them. It was wonderful. But there was a problem, of course. The problem was they couldn't just go from Egypt into the promised land, they had to first go through the wilderness. That's how it's described in the Bible. It's just called the wilderness. And this particular wilderness, like most barren places, didn't have much that was easy to take and eat. Certainly did not have enough to feed an entire nation. And so in that wilderness, in that place between Egypt and the Promised Land, Israel became hungry. So hungry, in fact, that they began to despair. 
and panic and cry out against their leaders and against God and to say things like Moses, like this, they said, quote, would that we have, would have died by the hand of God in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat and ate bread to the full. For now you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill us with hunger. It's a pretty drastic thing to say to the man who is just by God's empowerment led you out of literal slavery. What these Israelites in the wilderness were saying was, Moses, it's better to be a slave with lots to eat than to be free with an empty belly. How could you have done this to us? What they're saying, in effect, is we'd rather be dead than be hungry. And yet our Lord says, blessed are the hungry. Surely there is something about hunger, something about unsatisfied desire that unsettles us, right? Not just literal physical hunger, but that hunger which fills up all of our life, that fills us as human beings with anxiety and fear in that place of hunger, that place of unsatisfied desire. We're hungry beings. That's the kind of beings that we are, not just for food, but for lots of things, for relationship, for power, for praise, for peace. And we spend so much of our life seeking to fill those hungers. But Jesus stands before us as he stood before his disciples and he says, Blessed are you who hunger in that place of hunger. After 40 years with those first Israelites who left Egypt, Moses stood before the children of those same people after they had died, after they had gotten what they had asked for, death instead of hunger. And he said to their children on the precipice of the promised land, he said, you should remember the whole way that Yahweh your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. These were men and women who were born in the wilderness, who had never known anything but hunger. He said, you should remember how the Lord has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. For he humbled you and tested you, and he let you be hungry, Moses says, so that you might, I'm sorry, so that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by all that comes from the mouth of Yahweh. I think it's fascinating what Moses says there, that God let these children be hungry as they grew into men and women, so that they would know that they do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, Moses was telling those Israelites, he tells us as well, I think. He says, God made you hungry, and God allowed you to stay hungry. 
so that you would learn that it is not really bread that you want, but God. Which is, of course, simply another way of saying what Jesus, the greater Moses, said. Blessed are you who hunger. In the rhythm of the church calendar, Advent is a season, really, that's meant for cultivating hunger, for cultivating desire, for paying attention to what we long for. Advent's meant to be a season of looking forward, a season of acknowledging our desires, a time when we are called to give ourselves to both articulating and also questioning what it is that we long for, as well as considering the person in whom we are trusting for the satisfaction of those things that we desire and long for. And so this question, I think, comes to us again. What are the things, friend, that you hunger for? What are you hungry for? What is it that you want more than anything else in this world? Do you know what it is? Can you give it a name, that desire that you have, even if it's just in the secret of your own heart? And the second question is this. Whatever it is that you're hungering for, what are you doing with that hunger? Are you affirming that hunger as a blessing? Or are you despising it as a curse? Is your hunger something that you are articulating to God and to those around you? Or are you trying to cover your hunger? Pretend that your belly is actually full when it's not. That there's actually nothing that you're longing for at all. And in those moments when you are alone and when you cannot hide even from yourself the hunger that you have, what is it that you do then? Do you look for distraction? Any way to numb that hunger that you feel? Or are you willing to be hungry? To remain hungry? To embrace what your Lord is saying, that hunger is a blessing? Whatever else might be true about our culture today, it is undeniably the case that there are more options now for numbing our hunger. I don't just mean physical hunger, I mean desire. Numbing our desire than any that have probably ever existed in the history of mankind, right? Whether your drug of choice is something you can find on the, on the internet, right? Social media or something like shopping or something like you know, something darker than that, or something else, something you can drink or take in your body, it is almost always available for you to access when you think you need it and desire. Our culture, friends, is not one in which it is easy to remain hungry, to pay attention to our real hungers and desires. 
People in our age don't become addicted to alcohol and drugs or video games or success or power or staying young and beautiful or whatever it is they're addicted to. They don't become that way simply because they're sinful. They become addicted to those things because they're hungry for something. And they find it difficult to live with that hunger. Uncomfortable. And the reality is, is that it is always easier to go back to Egypt and fill our bellies with food that does not satisfy than it is to remain in the wilderness where Jesus is and to believe Jesus when he says that it is actually a blessing to be hungry. You see, all of us in various ways are hungry, and this is not an accident. This is not a cruel twist of fate. This is the will of God. God is the one, friend, who has put hunger in your heart. God is the one who has given you desire. And so much in your life, so much, beloved, depends on whether you will believe God when he says to you that you are blessed, not cursed, when you hunger. That hunger is a blessing. Because if you believe him, you will be prepared to receive your hunger not as something to be numbed or covered up or forgotten, but actually as a gift, a gift from your Father. But the reason, this is important, your hunger is a blessing and not a curse is not because somehow the state of being hungry is good just in and of itself, that it's good to be hungry. No, our hungry is a blessing because of this, because the one who said, blessed are you who are hungry now, didn't stop mid-sentence. Now he kept on speaking. He said, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. Those who hunger now are blessed, our Lord says, because they will be made full. They will be satisfied. That's what Jesus says to you and to me, and it's a remarkable thing to say. I mean, can you imagine that? To be completely satisfied? To have all your desires absolutely fulfilled? For there to be nothing more for which you long? The prophet of Isaiah spoke of these things. He spoke of the fulfillment of hunger, of the satisfaction of desire, when he said that one day on this mountain, Yahweh of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow of aged wine, well refined. That's the picture that Isaiah is giving of what is to come. Full and complete satisfaction. It's almost unimaginable what Isaiah speaks of, and there is nowhere in this life where we fully, 
fully experience the reality of that promise. And that is so important, friend, for you to know. There is nowhere in your life where you will fully experience right now what Isaiah is speaking of. Even in this meal, in this Lord's Supper, which is given to satisfy our hungers, we still walk away hungry. Even after we feed upon the Christ who is our life by the power of the Spirit, we still, if we're honest, go home and we're hungry again that afternoon. We're still longing for things that we don't yet have, a satisfaction that is beyond our present experience. And what I'm arguing for this morning, friends, is that maybe, just perhaps, the fact that even the Lord's Supper doesn't fully satisfy all your desire is not so much a flaw in the sacrament as it is a feature of what the Lord wants you to experience here. Maybe that's part of the deal. Because I think in the end, the Lord's Supper is not given to us week after week, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, to make us fully satisfied, but rather to inflame our desire towards its proper end. To make us even more hungry for what will really satisfy. Beloved, the Lord's Supper This sacrament of communion, this sacred meal, is not given to you each week to satisfy all your desires, but rather to inflame your desire toward what will truly bring you satisfaction. Augustine, in his confessions over 1,500 years ago, after meditating at the very beginning of that work on the wonder and glory of God, he is speaking to God and he says this to his creator. He says, O Lord, the house of my soul is narrow. Enlarge it that thou mayest enter in. O Lord, the house of my soul is narrow. Too narrow, I think Augustine is implying. Enlarge it that thou mayest enter in. That's why the Lord's Supper is given to us, as an answer to that kind of prayer that Augustine prayed. It is given to us as a means by which God might enlarge our souls, that he might expand our capacity for himself, that he might make us grow into a house for his eternal dwelling. The Lord's Supper, friend, is not given to you to make you full and happy. The Lord's Supper is given to you to train you to hunger more and more deeply, more and more rightly, for that which will truly satisfy God himself. Remember the Christ who is your life. He didn't just say, blessed are you who hunger, He also said, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In other words, Jesus is calling us as his followers to embrace their hunger, but he also is promising 
that he will satisfy that hunger. With what? With himself. But not yet. Not fully. Not quite yet. And that is why in this meal, when we confess the mystery of our faith, we say not only Christ has died, Christ is risen, but also what? Christ will come again. That's why we say that. Because we're pointing to something else, something we have not yet fully experienced. Here in this meal, we don't only remember the death of Jesus for our sin, and we don't only feed presently on Christ himself by the power of the Spirit. We are also publicly and corporately looking forward to something better, a greater feast to come. A feast when our host will no longer be hidden from us. A feast where our host will stand in our presence just as surely as I stand before you now. Friend, that is what you are waiting for. Because the claim of the scripture and the claim of the sacrament is that waiting behind all the hunger of our life is God. That it is actually God for whom we are hungry. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. To enjoy Him forever. Not for a moment, not for isolated hours, but forever to enjoy Him. That is your chief end. That is why you were made. And that is why a meal where we commune with God is at the center of our faith and the practice of our following in the way of Christ. Because whatever it is that we think we are hungry for, it is actually God that we long for. In Revelation 22, where the Apostle John is describing the city of the Lamb and all of its glories, right? Its pearly gates and its walls of gold and streets and all of these things and the river and the trees that are for the healing of the nations. And then finally he gets the end of that description, the very epoch of it, the, the, the end of it. He says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, in that city, and his servants will worship him. And then he says this, the very last thing he describes they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. They will see his face, John says, and God's name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. God's face will never be hidden, in other words. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God. God's face will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. To see the very face of God. To behold Him. Beloved, that is what you were made for. 
That is what you were made to long for more than anything else. Maybe you think that's crazy for me to say that. But I promise you it's true. This is the reason for which you were made, to behold the face of God and to live always in His presence. And this meal, this sacrament, is given to you to train your heart so that your heart might be shaped to long for that that you were made for, so that you would long for the right thing, the thing that will satisfy, which is God Himself. This is why the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians that as they took the Lord's Supper, they proclaimed the Lord's death until He comes. The Lord's Supper has a terminus, friends. It will end. It will go away and be replaced by something better. Jesus has aroused our hearts, friends. He has made you restless. Jesus himself has made you restless so that you might find your rest in him. And in this meal, he does that for you not just once, but again and again and again until he comes again. Jesus calls us blessed in our hunger so that we might learn to live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, so that we might live in and by and through him alone. That is why Jesus has given you hunger, even hunger that is not good for you, that is not right, that doesn't lead to good things, so that you might learn to direct that hunger toward himself. And so Jesus says, blessed are the hungry. And in response to that, the spirit and the bride, they say, come. And the saints who have gone before us, those who placed their hunger in God and waited for Him. You know what they say? In heaven, even now, they say, Come. So let the one who hears and the one who is hungry say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Because he who testifies to all of these things, he does not only say, blessed are the hungry, he also says this, he says, surely I am coming soon. And on that day, your hunger will be satisfied. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Indeed, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.